Good evening. Welcome to St. James. Uh, glad you're here for the midweek service. Uh, don't forget, right afterwards, uh, head downstairs, and uh, there's baked goods and uh, good food down there, and we can hang out and uh, talk to each other for a little bit after the service. So when we're done, just head straight down there. Okay, stand with me. And let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Jesus Christ is the light of the world, the light no darkness can overcome. Stay with us, Lord, for it is evening, and the day is almost over. Let your light scatter the darkness and illumine your church. Joyous light of glory of the immortal Father, heavenly, holy, blessed Jesus Christ. We have come to the setting of the sun, and we look to the evening light. We sing to God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You are worthy of being praised with pure voices forever. O Son of God, O giver of life, the universe proclaims your glory. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who led your people Israel by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Enlighten our darkness by the light of your Christ. May his word be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. For you are merciful and you love your whole creation. And we, your creatures, glorify you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Psalm is Psalm 4. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You've given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You've put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. You may be seated.
epistle reading is all of Ephesians 4. It's a really, really good chapter. There's a ton of good stuff in here. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says that the word grace there in seven, it's not just grace in general, it's uh, uh, spiritual gifts is specifically what he's talking about there. Uh, the word uh, for uh, spiritual gifts is really, it's, it's the word for grace. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying, he ascended, Jesus ascended. What does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended, the one who came to earth, is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens. Jesus ascended up to the right hand of his father that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles and because he ascended, he now is able to give good gifts to all men. He gave the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, that's us, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now, this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, and the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that's not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. 
In many and various ways, God spoke to his people of old by the prophets. But now in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So tonight, let's talk about, so we've talked about pride and we've talked about greed. And tonight, let's talk about wrath, um, which is kind of a weird one. It's in, um, you'll see why in a few minutes. So, so pride is always wrong. It's, it's always wrong to be proudful. We are created beings and none of us has a right to think of ourselves more than we ought to think. Uh, greed is always wrong. Uh, wrath, though, is one of the seven deadly sins, which this is why I said it's an interesting one. Wrath is not always wrong. Wrath is one of the seven deadly sins, but there are, as you see when we get in here, it's not the same as the other deadly sins. It's not the same as uh, uh, you know, greed or pride or gluttony or sloth or lust. But the Bible does tell us that we should not be angry. It's definitely one of the things that God wants us to know from his word. Uh, the last two verses of our reading here, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away with, with you. So put, all, put away all wrath and all anger. The Bible says things like this quite a lot throughout, uh, throughout its writings. The book of Proverbs is almost, uh, almost every text about anger in the book of Proverbs is universally against it as a human emotion. Proverbs 29.22 says, a man of wrath stirs up strife. One given to anger causes much transgression. The source of a lot of sin is anger and wrath. Proverbs 14.29 says, Whoever slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. Uh, uh, connecting anger, bad tempers, and foolishness. Uh, in fact, I, mean, this is, I, I think this is pretty transparent to, to everyone in here. I, I think that when you see somebody lose, your temp lose their temper, one of the most noticeable things about it is how ridiculous it usually is. How silly somebody who has a bad temper looks and talks and acts. A lot of times, you know, we associate it with kind of the, the, the no-filter excesses of uh, toddlerhood. And uh, when people act like that, when people lose their temper, the book of Proverbs says, it's a kissing cousin of foolishness. Proverbs 19.11 says, good sense makes one slow to anger. And it is his glory to overlook an offense. Good sense is what's behind people who don't get angry and are able to overlook an offense. We all know people, uh, we all are people sometimes that can't overlook an offense, that can't be hurt or challenged without kind of bowing up and saying, well, I got to get back and get a little bit of mine back. But good sense would lead us away from that. Genesis 4, it's kind of a primal sin, right? Adam and Eve sin in Genesis 3, but in Genesis 4, Cain and Abel are, uh, you know, God's talking to them and he asks them to bring offerings. And in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. And, and, and we know what that led to. I mean, the, the, the follow-up in the story is that he kills his brother, which J Jesus seems to imply in, in, in the Sermon on the Mount that, that, that murder, of course, is the most evil sin that you commit, can, can, can commit. The destruction of something, somebody else made in God's image. This is the highest of all evils, murder is. But there's a, a primal sin behind it, that murder doesn't happen if anger doesn't happen first. And so Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Jesus seems to be saying that, like, you know, uh, murder's wrong, of course, but you don't get to murder if you don't start with anger. Harbored anger, 
patterns of anger, like holding on to anger and letting it grow and develop in us, is that it's not doesn't always lead to murder, but it leads. It could lead to murder. Murder, you know, it, it doesn't always lead to murder, but murder always starts with it. So, um, anger's wrong. Anger's wrong. We shouldn't do that. Just to wrap up, with the, uh, I, I know I'm uh, throwing a lot of text at you tonight. James 1, 19 through 20, James says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Anger is antithetical to behavior that would exhibit God's righteousness. So the Bible tells us don't be angry. But the Bible also sometimes views anger as morally appropriate, even at sometimes essential. And want to talk, I'll give you a few verses here, then want to talk about how these things can go together. The Bible does sometimes view anger as morally acceptable. In Psalm 7, 6, the psalmist prays, Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You've appointed a judgment. Calling God to be angry is a legitimate prayer in the, in the Psalms. Nahum 1, verse 2, describes Yahweh this way. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Um, so whatever else we can say about anger and, and, and wrath, there are times when God is filled with anger and wrath, and we can do nothing but call that holy and righteous. Romans 1.18, famous text uh, in Lutheran circles, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Jesus too is angry from time to time. Mark chapter three, Jesus enters the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand and the people that were in the synagogue watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to the people gathered around, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. They didn't want to answer. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. That's an interesting, that's an interesting, uh, it's a, it's an interesting uh, element to throw into this story here. Uh, you know, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, isn't always gentle Jesus, meek and mild. There are some things that tick him off. Anger for Jesus is appropriate in this moment. Again, we'll talk about why in just a few minutes. Moses in the presence of Pharaoh is angry when Pharaoh refuses to listen to the commands of the Lord to him. Paul in Galatians 2, when Peter is denying the gospel in front of the Gentile Christians, Paul gets angry and st st stands up and puts his finger in Peter's chest. Of course, Jesus cleansing the temple is the, the classic story of righteous anger. What do all these things have in common? Anger, but done underneath the auspices of holiness and righteousness. Verse 26 in our text seems to indicate this. Be angry is the command, quoting from Psalm 4, which we also read. Be angry and do not sin. We'll get to that in a few minutes. But Paul here says, be angry. It's a part of being a good Christian is at times being angry. So there's commands to not be angry, but then here we have in Ephesians 4 a command to be angry. How are we going to put these things together? What's the difference? How do you know when your anger is good and when it's bad? Well, I think the key is to understand God's anger. We read a bunch of texts that describe God's anger. And to look at it, what is it that makes God angry? And if it's the same thing that's making us angry, I think it's fair to say, you know, God or Jesus, I think it's fair to say that that anger would be righteous. So I have to point this out to start off. We have to understand God's anger to know if our anger is good anger or bad anger. God's anger, 
flows out of, this is a key point here tonight, this is, the, this is kind of the, the, the center point of my little sermonette here. God's anger, God's holy and righteous anger flows out of his love. God's holy and righteous anger flows out of his love. Let me read to you from Psalm 145. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. God's default mode is love and kindness and tender mercies. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but the wicked he will destroy. If God is kind in all his ways... How are the wicked destroyed in his wrath? And the answer is, because the Lord is kind in all his ways. He is a God of wrath. And, and if those two things don't stick in our head, we aren't going to really understand, A, who God is, B, what, what true love is, and C, how it is that we can evaluate our righteous anger and discern it from our unrighteous anger. We have to understand that God's wrath always flows out of his love. They're inextricably connected. They are not two separate qualities. God is not somehow like a hot tap and a cold tap. And sometimes the hot tap is running and you better look out. And sometimes the cold tap is running and that's going to be okay. It's not like that. The love and the wrath always go together. And that's just the way love works, period. Let me give you a biblical definition of righteous anger. Actually, just let, me, let me start with a biblical definition of just anger in general. A strong feeling of displeasure and belligerence stirred up when something we love is challenged or attacked. You get angry when something that you love and value is challenged and attacked. Nobody ever gets angry in a vacuum. You only get angry about the things that you love being challenged and attacked. Does this make sense? Love and anger go together. I've done this illustration here before. Like if, I'm, if we go downstairs tonight and I, you know, and I, and I uh, grab like a plate of fruit and I sit down and eat it and, and one of you comes up and starts eating the grapes off my plate, I'm not going to get mad at all. You know why? Because I didn't really even want the grapes in the first place. I didn't have any strong feelings for them one way or the other. I did not have love for them. And so you taking them is not going to make me wrathful. If, however, somebody kidnaps one of my kids... I'm going to be furious. Why? Because I love that child. And the love that I have for the thing that's challenged or attacked will necessarily correspond to the wrath that I experience when that thing is challenged and attacked. Now, let me just make this point. It's a very, very common thing in our culture for people who don't know God to say, well, I can't believe in a God of judgment and wrath. I can only believe in a God of love. And what I'm saying here tonight is that you can't have that. A God of love will be a God of wrath. And a God who doesn't have any wrath is a God who doesn't have any love. If you kidnap my kids and I'm like, all right, well, okay. You would say you don't love your kids. And you would gauge that on the fact that I wasn't angry when they were kidnapped. Because love and wrath always go together. Now, maybe this will help us out a little bit in understanding the difference between righteous anger and unrighteous anger. Let's do it like this. What makes God angry? What makes God angry is the same thing that makes you and me, you and I angry. When something that he loves is challenged or attacked or damaged. Now, what is it that he loves? He loves creatures that he made in his image to reflect his glory. He loves his son. He loves the glory of his own name. These are things that he loves. And when you challenge and attack these things, it makes him angry. If God's name is challenged and attacked and I get angry, that's a righteous anger. If 
I kind of want you to do what I want you to do, and you don't do it, and I get angry. Why do I get angry? This is, uh, we all know this. Why do I get angry when you don't do what I, what I want you to do? It's because I love people obeying me. And when that's challenged and attacked, it makes me angry. If I didn't love people obeying me, I would be fine with it. That would be a mature person. But because I do love it, it makes me angry. Does this make sense? The things that make us angry are the things that we love, challenged, and attacked. God always values and loves noble, beautiful things. When your children are attacked, when your hometown is attacked, it's worthwhile getting angry about that. Not as much as if your children are attacked. If somebody steals your car, it's worthwhile getting angry over that because that's a value. That's a gift that God gave you. Not, not anywhere near as much as if your kids are attacked, or in my opinion, if your hometown is attacked or something like that. If your church is attacked, if the honor of God is attacked, all these are legitimate reasons to get righteously angry. When we don't get our way, when people disagree with us, when our own personal honor is attacked, these are not reasons to get angry. When we get angry about those things, we show that we love and value those things. And those are not things that we should love and value. Okay, well, does that help us with maybe on a surface level with uh, um, when you get angry, should you be angry or shouldn't you be angry? I, I guess it's, it's sort of in a clinical way. It's nice to be able to decipher what is good anger and what is bad anger. But we still have a big problem, and that's the capital W, wrath that's in the universe. God's wrath against sinners, which we talked about at the very beginning. And the way, that, the way that the Bible handles this, the way that God in his sovereign love handles this is in Romans 5. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. God is not wrathful because he's like some sort of mean-spirited, picky guy. God's wrathful because he loves us. God's love and God's wrath go hand in hand. And when God is angry with the world, it's simply because he loves the world. Paul puts these two things together in Romans 5. He demonstrates his love for us by dying for us so that we don't have to face the wrath of God. And those two things go together. For those of you, for those of you who have kids, so how, how is this? So what, 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 that, what that text is talking about is this, is that the wrath of God is swallowed up by the love of God so that both are validated because they both go together. The love and wrath, remember the two sides of the same coin. They're both validated because they come together at the cross. For those of you who have kids, do you ever remember a time when your kids did something? Okay, so let me just say this. This is one of the things that you say to somebody who's like, I can't believe in a God of wrath. I only believe in a God of love. What if you found out that one of your kids had gotten addicted to some sort of like horrible drug? Would you be angry? You wouldn't love them if you weren't angry. And maybe not even angry at them, but just angry at the kind of broken world which would create that sort of scenario. Have you ever, parents, have you ever, has your kid ever done something that they shouldn't have done and you've gotten angry? Righteously angry because they've done something to hurt themselves. It's, a lot of times, you know, I'm, you know, when I was a kid, I would do stupid stuff to hurt myself and I wouldn't even really think of it in, term, in those terms like I was doing something bad and damaging. My parents would see it. My parents would see that if I continue this behavior, my life is not going to be a good situation going forward. Like if I develop the habits that I'm working on right now, my life's going to be screwed up. And it would make them angry at me, righteously angry at me, not necessarily at me as a person, but at the brokenness that I was starting to dabble in, which they could see could easily become an, an addiction. And so they get angry, and then they punish. You, you punish your kid. And then when you, when you punish your kid, 
and the situation is taken care of. Have you ever, have you ever done this? You've punished them, and then almost instantly you feel like waves of like feelings of mercy for them, like pity for them in, in, in their punishment, wanting to take away the punishment. Well, this is actually what God does. Because we've damaged ourselves, because I have damaged my, my, my own body, my own mind, because I've damaged my relationships, because I damage you guys all the time. God, because he loves me desperately, is angry because I'm destroying myself, which he loves dearly. And he has to create this punishment. And when he creates this punishment, he has mercy because the problem's taken care of. And you know, you, you, you know that moment when you go to your kid's room and you knock on the door and you say, you know, come out and let's talk about this. And you try to shower love on them because the problem's been taken care of. And the deal is, is that God's wrath, his righteous wrath of the brokenness of the world is wrapped up with his love. So the two things go together, but the wrath is temporary, whereas the love is eternal. Once the problem has been dealt with, all that's left is the love because If your kids are kidnapped and they're returned, the wrath goes away. The, the, if justice is served and the bad guy is punished, because you, it's been restored to you. It's been restored to you. And when, when, when the source of, when the thing that God's love that's been damaged is healed and repaired, the wrath and the love, the love swallows up the wrath so that all, is, all that's left is the love. I'm just trying to emphasize to you that it's not like God has two switches and like, I'm going to throw the wrath switch and I'm going to blow you all up. Oh, Jesus tells me not to. I'll turn that off and throw on the love switch. They actually go together. But since you are in Jesus Christ, there is no more wrath for you. God is not angry with you any longer. The only reason he was angry with you in the first place is because he loves you desperately. It's the only reason, the same reason you get angry when your kids do something foolish. It only flows, I don't get angry when anybody else's kids do anything foolish. Sometimes I'm kind of amused by it. But when my kids do something, and that's the way that God loves us. He loves us enough that he gets angry that we would screw ourselves up. He loves us enough that he's willing to go to lengths to get rid of the problem that causes him that anger and repair us completely in his love. Okay, now if that gospel principle is true, let me give me three minutes here to talk about how can we deal with our anger. So let's go from how God deals with his wrath to how can that help us deal with our, our wrath, okay, with our anger? Because I, I know, I look at, so I know that a lot of us in here struggle with anger. We struggle with kind of losing our temper from time to time, or maybe all the time. Maybe it's chronic for you at this point. Maybe you roll out of bed in the morning and you're angry and you don't even know why. What can we do? How can the gospel, how can this gospel of God's love swallowing up his wrath in Jesus help us out? I'm just going to give you two principles and we'll be done. First one, control your anger. The gospel means that you can control your anger. Verse 26 says, be angry and do not sin. That implies that there's times when you are angry and you should get angry. It implies that anger is an emotion that you need to turn on sometimes. There are things that make us angry that, sh that, that shouldn't because it's only reflecting our love for our own weak values. There are things that should make us angry and don't, don't make us angry because we don't value what God values. Be angry. Be angry. Also, though, look down at verse 31. God tells us in verse 26 to be angry, but in verse 31, he says, don't be angry. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Put it away. God doesn't pretend like your emotions are somehow out of your control. Emotions are something that are definitely in our control. Now, it's not perfect. Like anything else, it's not perfect. But God wants you to be in charge of your emotions. He wants to say, be angry about this. Stop being angry about that. 
And the excuse that I lose my temper and I can't get it back, it's out of my control, is no longer true under the power of the gospel because Jesus has died and risen from the dead because he swallowed up the anger of God. This means that nothing, not even our anger, has the power to control us and enslave us anymore. You can turn it off. The anger that you're experiencing, you are no longer a slave, Paul insists in Romans chapter 6. You are a free child of God. You can turn it off. Put away anger. Be angry and do not sin. Control your anger. Second thing, redirect your anger. Away from yourself. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. It's a fancy way of saying this. Don't soak in your anger. Don't don't wallow in it. Don't carry it around with you. Don't gunny sack it. Don't stick it into your emotional tool belt in such a way that you don't know how to get it out. Don't redirect your anger away from yourself. It's not, it's, don't, your anger will not go away on its own. Send it away from you. Do not allow, do, do not allow it to sit inside of you. Um, here's a quote which I, I know I have, go, I have on good authority, although I have seen it attributed to Mark Twain. I've seen it attributed to Nietzsche. I think I've seen it attributed to uh, Will Ferrell. But I have, I have it on good authority that it actually comes from the Buddha. And it goes like this. Being bitter is like drinking poison and hoping that the other person dies. Some of you have heard this before. Like holding on to anger, like there's something sweet about that. It's a lie of Satan. There's something sort of sweet about holding on to anger and rehearsing in your mind bad things happening to the people that you've made, that, 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 have, that, that have made you angry. But you're actually just destroying yourself. And this is why Paul says, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Do not hold on to it. But it will grab you. It will latch onto you like a leech. Put it away from yourself. Redirect it away from yourself. Redirect it away from others as well. Verse 29 says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion. Do not let your anger, send your anger away so that the speech that you have and your actions will build others up. It's the reason why this is right in between these two uh, sections on anger here, because anger does totally affect the way we treat other people, especially those that we're anger, angry with, but of course, other people as well. You're an angry person. I guarantee that your spouse feels the weight of that. I guarantee that your, your, your family and your friends and your kids and your parents feel the weight of that anger. Don't do that. Redirect it away from them as well. What can anger, what, what can anger do to you? What positive can anger what positive thing can anger motivate you to do? Unrighteous anger can do nothing but sap you, can do nothing but destroy you. Key gospel principle here, since Jesus has died to pay for our sins, self-directed anger is a lie. To go back to like, redirect your anger away from yourself. If Jesus died for your sins, if the wrath of God is no longer on your shoulders because it's been put on Jesus' shoulders, self-directed anger is a lie. It's actually a lie of the devil to be angry with yourself. So elders meeting on Monday night, and um, I, I was supposed to do something, and I forgot to do something, and I said I was an idiot. And John Lang immediately said, just like, in, in, like instantly just said, you're not an idiot, you're a redeemed child of God. And there's a good, like, I was, you know, I, was, I, I did, I don't know how to say it now with John sitting there, but I did something foolish. I had forgotten to do something I was supposed to do. But, you know, what John's tapping into there is the power of the gospel, which says, if you're a child of God, then it's a lie to be angry at yourself. It's a lie. If you, you know, to be angry at yourself is to say to God, okay, so God, you think that I'm worthy of love? 
But no, you're wrong and I'm right. That's the height of idolatry. Also though, if Jesus died to pay for the sins of others, other directed anger is also a lie. There is never a reason to be angry at anybody in the whole world. Now, there is a reason to be righteously angry at sin, but not at anybody else. There's two types of people in the universe. There are those who have been redeemed by God by the blood of Jesus Christ. Because, because the wrath of God is not on them, it would be a falsity for us to put our wrath upon them. The other type of person, though, is the people who aren't redeemed, unbelievers. And for them, they've been blinded by the God of this world, Paul says. They are ignorant. We just read this earlier on in Ephesians chapter 4. To be angry at people who have no choice but to be the way they are because they're lost and trapped in their sins, that would also be a lie. So another way to tell that your sinfulness is not righteous is when it's directed towards other people. But the key thing tonight is just to remember this, is that the wrath of God is spent. The wrath of God, which was upon you at one point, is now spent. It's all swallowed up in the love of God for you. And the punishment's been paid. So that the wrath, which would flow out of that love, if the punishment wasn't paid, there's no reason for it to be, to be there anymore. Jesus loves you. The wrath is gone. And by the power of the gospel, we can live lives of uh, trusting him and not being unrighteously angry with ourselves or with others. Okay, stand with me and let's sing the Magnificat.
In peace, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. For the peace from above and for our salvation, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. For the peace of the whole world, for the well-being of the church of God, and for the unity of all, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. For this holy house and for all who offer here their worship and praise, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. For Matt Harrison and Timothy Shar, for all pastors in Christ, for all servants of the church, and for all the people, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. For President Biden, Governor Pritzker, Mayor Marcus, for all public servants, for the government and those who protect us, that they may be upheld and strengthened in every good deed, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy for those who work to bring peace, justice, health, and protection in this and every place. Let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy for those who bring offerings, those who do good works in this congregation, those who toil, those who sing, and all the people here present who await from the Lord great and abundant mercy. Let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy for favorable weather, for an abundance of the fruits of the earth, and for peaceful times. Let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy for our deliverance from all affliction, wrath, danger, and need. Let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy for the faithful who've gone before us and are with Christ. Let us give thanks to the Lord. Thanks be to God. Help, save, comfort, and defend us, gracious Lord. Rejoicing in the fellowship of all the saints, let us commend ourselves, one another, and our whole life to Christ our Lord. To you, O Lord. O God, from whom come all holy desires, all good counsels, and all just works. Give to us, your servants, that peace which the world cannot give that our hearts may be set to obey your commandments, and also that we, being defended from the fear of our enemies, may live in peace and quietness. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Taught by our Lord and trusting his promises, we are bold to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let us bless the Lord. Thanks be to God. The almighty and merciful Lord, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit bless and preserve you. Amen. You may be seated.